0: Welcome to the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's art director. In December of 2021, I interviewed Anjan Chatterjee, the director of the Penn Center for Neuroaesthetics, for my project about intense aesthetic experiences and the role of art in society called Perfect Recognition. Anjan is a leading figure in the young field of neuroaesthetics, the study of how we derive pleasure from the arts and other stimuli. His work in neurology, psychology, and art has spanned clinical, academic, administrative, and editorial positions for the past 30 years. In last year's issue, we published a video clip from this interview as well as an excerpt from Brain, Beauty, and Art, Essays Bringing Neuroaesthetics into Focus, which Anjin co-edited. His essay, titled Beautiful People in the Brain of the Beholder, can be found in our reading series. While the previous interview clip focused more on Anjan's experience in photography and funding for the arts, this edit goes more in depth into the role of art in Anjan's life growing up, his experience in the science of art, and the advances from and challenges to putting art under the microscope. have your familiar and familial and uh or partner relationships played in your pursuit of art or science
1: well the science is easier uh uh to to talk about mostly because my my father was a physician my mother is a nurse my sister is a scientist so science was always all around Uh, and so that was uh it's a familiar domain uh and uh you know You know, so many of my friends are people I went to med school with and so on. So that's uh, that that one is easier. Uh, The art is a little harder to tell Uh, there. You know, my family wasn't particularly driven towards the arts. Um, My father is from a part of India called Bengal, where. Uh, art and music is in India is like one of the places where that was highly valued. So I think he had he valued it, but it wasn't something that was all around. Uh, I think that uh, that interest came later in life for me. Um, and um, I think I mentioned to you in something I wrote that uh, I grew up in India, went to. A school run by Jesuits from Spain and from the very beginning we had art as a class uh, the same as having math and English and geography and history you know art was a class all the way along uh, and we typically would have uh, in addition to class assignments we would all have sketchbooks and you'd have to at the end of a term turn in 50 sketches it could be anything they didn't tell you what and this was also at the time this would have been in the 1960s uh in a in a culture where we didn't have tv uh going to the movies was a really big deal it was a big celebratory event and uh, books were not easy to come by, so it's not a. It wasn't a childhood that was rich in visual imagery in a way that most people, uh, at least in the U.S. right now, is their experiences. And so, going out and actually drawing, and you know, I'd go out with friends and we'd draw together. Uh, it was just an activity to do. Uh, so I think that was really what got me interested in looking and uh, and at least engaging with the visual world in that way.
0: Uh, What do you think is the relationship between economic stability or lack thereof and the motivation to create both personally and in terms of the broader population?
1: Yeah, I think... uh, So, first of all, I'm not in a situation where I have to make a living off of art, right? So that completely changes my relationship to the economics of it. Uh, I think the idea that... uh, you know, you have to have food, and you have to have shelter, right? Um, I think people need a certain amount of stability to be able to to do their art. Uh, certainly, people draw on their own struggles as uh, as a vehicle to express themselves. Uh, but I think you have to have a, a a basic minimum level of economic stability to 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 continue and to have sustained production. <laughs> And the other thing around that is I've never tried to um, I've never tried to show my work right I don't take them to galleries or try to you know uh promote work in fact for the first i'd say seven or eight years I would just print things and map them and have them in boxes in my home and maybe two or three people saw them uh and it didn't matter it wasn't really for anybody else um, so uh you know, and then at, at different points in my life, I've wondered whether I should try to, to show show things, uh, but I ended up thinking that so much of my science is also about promoting the work, right? It's not enough to do uh, an experiment and get it published. Then you have to try to promote it and have a narrative around your science, uh, and I didn't want my hobby to become the same thing to have you know, put in the same kind of obsessiveness that. <laughs> You, you have to as a as a scientist if you want to be successful. I didn't want to put in that kind of energy into into what essentially was, a serious hobby. Is a serious hobby that I quite enjoyed and didn't want it sullied with all those other motivations.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you? How do you view the role of uh, criticism in the production of art? Like, uh, where do you feel like it fits in? Do you feel like it's um, a positive or negative force?
1: To me, crit- art criticism is a way for people to. Be informed about other people 's reactions to it and what they think are salient about the experience, which may or may not fit with your own uh, reaction to it uh, but i think uh, I think the general uh, conversation around art can be useful uh, to to get a sense of even how to look at a piece of art, whether or not you agree with the particular particular critic. Um, where I have some, uh, I, and this is more out of ignorance than anything else, is where I start to have, feel a little uh, discomfort is if particular critics have uh, disproportionate power over how art is regarded and you know, how it's dealt with in the art market. Uh, that starts to get gets more complicated to me at least. I mean, there's informational stuff that I think is useful. So, you know, particularly thinking in the last few years, uh, Hilma of Clint as, you know, an abstract expressionist who was completely absent from any kind of art history uh, discourse uh, up until very recently. So finding out about her and, you know, the context in which she was making her art and, uh, you know, and in this whole time where, there were sort of spiritualist tendencies in the culture, at least in European culture at the time, and how this fit in that. Uh, That stuff is really useful, uh, I find, when looking at her artwork to put it in that kind of context. And so that's not criticism per se. It's not saying that it's good or bad. It's just putting putting it in a place and at least revising this notion that abstract art began with Kandinsky, for example, which is the kind of standard narrative
0: what roles do you feel like uh, race and gender have played in your path and your choices?
1: Certainly in, in the context of medicine, it, I didn't have to deal with what a lot of my uh, women friends had to deal with, which is the meat assumption that you're a nurse and not a doctor, right? That kind of thing uh, happened all the time. Um, <clears throat> my My issues have more to do with being an immigrant than than race per se. Uh, So when I moved here uh, in the uh, early 70s, for example, in my high school, I was the only South Asian kid. Uh, When I went to college at Haverford, I was the only South Asian guy there. When I did my neurology residency at the University of Chicago, and I have this very distinct memory of one of the uh, physicians there in attending who is from Iceland, uh, and is was kind of a sort of a Viking in modern day clothing, basically. And actually went back to Iceland and started one of the the biggest genetic companies in Iceland. Is he's the CEO of that. Uh, but he was quite uh, a, a pretty disinhibited about what he would say. And at one point, he just turned to me and said, uh, "You know, you're the wrong kind of immigrant in this country." Uh, and what he meant that you know if you're a Northern European immigrant. Americans love you, but if you're not that, they don't like you. And I think that probably is true. It's a little bit hard to know because, you know, in some ways I've had a charmed life and things have gone well. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, what the barriers were because things have gone well.
0: Could you please describe an instance when viewing, hearing, or creating a work of art that has caused an intense reaction?
1: Yeah, the example I've used a few times recently is a couple of years ago, I was in Barcelona. I was giving a talk there, and I only had a couple of days in the city. And I thought I would visit uh, Gaudí's cathedral, the uh, Sagrada Familia. And my plan was to go in there when it opened, be there a couple hours, and then spend the rest of the day touring Barcelona. Um, I ended up walking in and then not leaving until it closed. So I spent the entire day in this one place instead of seeing the rest of the town. Uh, and there was something about that space, uh, the richness of the environment, uh, the changing light. It has uh, stained glass windows that face both the... Uh, both east and west and so throughout the day the light changes was uh, completely transfixing for me Uh, and I didn't even realize how many hours I was there. Uh, It's rich with imagery in there. There are certain images that uh, were engaging in the sense of forcing me to look at things, things I didn't necessarily understand. I'm not inherently a religious person so this is not you know, a space that I, um, I spent a lot of time in. Uh, uh, and it was a combination of both the architecture and the objects in them. And so their emotions were exhilaration, confusion, uh, sometimes, uh, feeling challenged, uh, feeling intrigued, uh, feeling parts of it, uh, especially with the way the light was changing would feel restful. Uh, the, there were a lot of people there, but despite that, it didn't feel crowded. Uh, it felt as though I was having a personal experience with the space, despite there being many uh, many people around milling about.
0: And uh, if you could venture a guess at like what's happening on the brain level during something like this, uh, what, what would it be?
1: Um, a few things. Uh, one of the... Uh, an emotion that people study fair amount uh, is awe and a characteristic of awe seems to be that if uh, there are vast spaces especially if you have to look up that those seem at least prerequisites uh, for the experience of awe uh, I think there is a sense of uh, both wonder and amazement at how beautiful a space is but it's accompanied also with a little bit of anxiety a little bit of feeling like you're small in the space that your your own significance is maybe less than what one would typically want it to be or think it to be a recognition of that Uh, and so that's that would be one thing Um, another is we've been uh, interested in psychological reactions to architectural spaces and one important component to that is uh, what we're calling fascination uh, it's a sense of mystery about a space where there's a requires a certain degree of complexity, uh, and then you're intrigued and you want to explore more. Uh, that was very prominent over there. Uh, another uh, uh, reaction that we find that's important for architectural spaces uh, is something we're calling hominess, uh, and this might sound peculiar for. A person who's not particularly religious to be in a cathedral in uh, with a lot of other people. Uh, But it still felt homey. There was something weirdly cozy about the space, and I think it had more to do with the way the light filtered through the um, through the windows. Um, So I think those were all reactions I was having. Mm
0: -hmm. Excellent. And um, so the the aesthetic brain uh, mostly focuses on static visual art, and it seems like that's what resonates the most with you. Um...
1: I don't know that it resonates the most. I think it, in some ways, is easier to study. Uh, so we, I know more about uh, the visual organization of the brain. Uh, so we use how the brain organizes the world into... Uh, as a principle uh, with which uh, we design our experiments. And so one way to do that is people, places, and things. So we're interested in aesthetic of people, aesthetic of places, aesthetic of things. Things can be consumer products or it can be art. And we've focused a little bit on art. I think uh, I know less about the auditory system and the olfactory system. So I don't study music. I don't study perfumes. uh, And, you know, we recognize that, most aesthetic experiences uh, tend to be multimodal they 're not confined to one uh, one modality uh, but it's it 's a way for us to get into that space uh, and so the question of static images it just experimentally is more tractable then you have much more experimental control
0: mm-hmm. uh, and uh so i in my reading and stuff like that i've been mostly focused on music and reading mm-hmm. um uh but mostly music i've gone farthest down that rabbit hole um but it occurred to me that there are also still a lot of commonalities between the ex- the aesthetic experience no matter what the medium and so how would you describe the relationships between all the art forms differences similarities or yeah. uh
1: a broad framework we use in our studies is to think of aesthetic experiences out of emerging out of a triad of uh, large scale systems in the brain. One has to do with our sensory and motor systems, how they're organized. The design of those systems uh, has an influence on what and how we experience things. Uh, The other is the emotional reaction response to it, which often is pleasure and reward when we're talking about beauty, but it's not confined to that. Uh, And the third part of the triad is what uh, we refer to as the semantic and meaning part of things. And that's where people's individual experiences, the culture, they're in uh, the education they've had, all plays a role in modifying uh, what those experiences are. So having said that, uh, say if you compare music to visual art, one, you start out, it's a different modality. So the auditory system is going to have its own uh, properties that are distinct from the visual modality. So we would envision, you might think about form and color and spatial location, and think about how those all contribute to what uh, the experience is. With music, I imagine, I mean, you would know better than I, but I imagine, you know, pitch and melody and rhythm and, you know, all of those become independent factors uh, that might contribute to the experience. The other uh, piece is that music is extended in time, typically. And while you can have an experience of a visual work of art that is extended in time, the the image, the stimulus itself, is static and it's uh, it's uh, it doesn't change. Uh, I think most people think that emo- that music. Um, Has a way of getting into emotions in a way that's just a little harder for visual art. Uh, And colloquially, people certainly use music to regulate their own moods. You know, you have a breakup, you want to listen to melancholy songs, or you want to get jazzed up to work out. You you know, you you put on certain kinds of music. I think so. People do that in a way that I. I, It seems less likely that people are picking artwork. To, uh, to regulate their mood in the same way, uh, and so each I think each sensory modality has some uh, has has features uh, that might be different. Uh, smell, for example, uh, I mean I think academics argue whether fragrances can be an art form. I don't see in principle why it couldn't be if you're designing perfumes and that sort of thing. Um, we have a hard time putting words on to onto smells uh, that again has something to do with the design of our nervous system, which is olfactory inputs into the brain are quite removed from language systems. Uh, But they're very close to parts of the brain that have to do with memory. And so the sense of nostalgia and memory, I think, there are certain smells you encounter and immediately takes you back to a place and time in a way that uh, is less true for visual art, music maybe a little bit. Uh, so, I think there are properties of the of whichever sensory modality you're talking about. So, with dance, you've also got motor systems involved, and that has uh, certain certain features. But then they they all tap into the same emotional systems. So, whether it's rewards, uh, whether it's pleasure, uh, there are parts of the brain. Uh, For example, the ventral striatum, uh, and there's one particular part of that called the nucleus accumbens, that seems to be active regardless of the modality. Uh, And it doesn't even have to be art. It can be looking at beautiful people, it can be sex, it can be food. Uh, But this idea that all of these experiences and stimuli that, uh, that we find rewarding tap into the same reward system of our brain.
0: The functions that people use art for vary, like within the person, depending on like where they're at. Sure. Which makes it like kind of a slippery, uh, something that like might be a little bit difficult to get your hands on, especially experimentally.
1: Yeah, and so we face a tension that's true in psychology and cognitive neuroscience in general, which is the the tension between having decent experimental control and ecologic validity. Right? So we can bring in people uh, and give them very constrained instructions on how to respond, right? but that might not be how they respond in real life. One question we're uh, starting to ask is, what's the difference between the experience of looking at a piece of art in a museum and looking at a digital rendition of it on your computer? Right? Arguably, m- many people's experience of fine art high art right now is looking at it on their computer or on their phone. Uh, and is that, uh, what are the consequences of that as uh, uh, that our experience is mediated in such a way? Uh, and it's not obvious that it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I, I think that some things are lost, uh, the texture of the paintings, the sense of scale, that everything ends up looking the same size. You know, when the first time I uh, saw a Vermeer in a museum, I was surprised at how small it was. And, you know, it it invited peering into it and getting up close to the wall, you know, as close as they'll let you in museums. But it created a kind of intimacy in the relationship with the painting uh, that was consonant with the content of the painting. But you don't get that sense. Uh, you don't get that sense in... Uh, when you're looking at this on a uh, on a computer screen. Another example would be Chuck Close, who himself has trouble with facial recognition, and so he does these huge facial portraits, and part of the intent, I think, is if you're up close, you can't really identify that it's a face. It's all these, they seem like uh, patterns, but you have to be at a distance removed to appreciate that it's a face. Uh, on the production side, we just started, uh, we're starting shortly, it's just got funded, uh, a, uh, a project at Walter Reed Medical Center. And the project there is to use art therapy uh, for veterans with PTSD. And there, you know, one of the classic uh, functions of art is emotional expressivity. And so the idea there is that are these uh, these veterans who... Uh, are, have been deeply traumatized psychologically, have trouble putting into words what their experience is. And then does art then become another vehicle for them to express themselves and then becomes a, uh, uh, a way of externalizing their emotional experience that then is a platform on which the therapist can, can, um, can do their therapy with them. So, so that's another function of art that in a, a very practical one that uh, we're hoping uh, pays some dividends. Mm-hmm.
0: How would you describe the roles of expectation, subjectivity, and familiarity in the aesthetic experience?
1: Yeah, it goes, uh, I think, in both ways. Uh, people tend to like what's a bit familiar, uh, but you know, familiarity also breeds contempt. So it can be too familiar and then it's not so exciting. Uh, I think we find that a little bit of knowledge helps people. Even a title on a painting helps people to appreciate it more, uh, as opposed to just approaching it uh, without any information at all. Uh, especially with the abstract art, uh, the the uh, the the almost the cliched response that my kid could do it right is one of those things you hear all the time. And uh, but a little bit of knowledge of the context in which uh, that artwork was produced helps uh, tremendously with the, with the experience of it one thing we're starting to get interested in is the construct of of just curiosity like what is the role of curiosity in in experiencing art uh, and this is where ambiguity plays a role so much of art is ambiguous right it's not always it's not a simple kinkade you know beautiful picture of you know some some nice scene uh but especially challenging art uh introduces a certain am- amount of ambiguity and people either are overwhelmed with that or they want to deal with it or they want to find out what it is that uh, that's creating this dissonance on expectations uh, this i think plays out in music and I think you would know better than I, and musicians would know of how you can sort of play with the expectations, whether it's with timing or, you know, what sequence of notes you're going to play. Uh, one thing that is a prominent idea in neuroscience right now is called a prediction error. Uh, and this is the idea that we are constantly simulating the world. You sample the world briefly, you have a simulation of it, and then the next time you sample it, that simulation is either Burn out or it turns out to be wrong. And from that prediction error, if there's an error, uh, that's an opportunity to learn and to adapt. And some of the neurochemistry of that has been worked out where dopamine seems to be a critical piece to the mismatch of your expectation and what you end up seeing. And that is a vehicle for learning. So uh, art that is challenging, I think, plays with this right it's challenging because it's not meeting your expectation and then the question is what do you do with that how do you how do you try to deal with it and we think that uh, curiosity as a construct becomes important if you're curious about why it's not meeting your expectation then you want to learn more about it and I think that's where the idea that art can have a have a transforming effect uh, comes with that engagement the dialogue with the piece of art uh, and that only happens or primarily happens when it doesn't meet your expectation.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and on a broader level, how do you feel about the placement of art in society historically and currently and where would you like to see it go?
1: Well, one of the, the questions we try to ask is uh, why does art matter? And it, you know, usually when you talk to other people who love art, it's a little bit preaching to the choir. But how do you make how do you make the case um, to people who don't necessarily believe that art matters? And uh, and I think there, again, there's a tension because the, the idea is that there needs to be a practical application to art to even make that case, which uh, I think uh, raises some tensions. Uh, but I do think it's incumbent on us to try to make the case. Like, why what is the role of the mural arts program in Philadelphia, right? Has this had a, a, a salutary effect on the city and, you know, poor parts of the city? Um, I was, a few weeks ago, I was in conversation with uh, a person who um, had been, had run for uh to be a governor of New Hampshire unsuccessfully, but did quite well, and so is someone who operates at that level of politics. And he's got very interested in small communities uh, in New Hampshire that are almost Norman Rockwelly kind of communities, but they seem to be really dying And how to revitalize them. And so one of the big conversations with him was around art. What can art serve as a role? To revitalize communities, uh, so I think arts do play an important role. I think they uh, they are a way, f- one as I mentioned before, for us to slow down, but also as an expression of values and trying to get a sense of what it is we value and to uh, and to highlight that. But I think it's incumbent on on people who care about it to demonstrate that. People who don't care about it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. We're an independent literary site and nonprofit organization based in the Boston area, but with contributors from around the world. Since our founding in 2010, we've relied on donations to keep publishing and podcasting. To donate to TW, you can use the donate button on the RSS.com page of this podcast, or visit TalkingWriting.com donate. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at TalkingWriting.com. All of the music in this episode was written by me, John Vogel.